Welcome everybody to the Technology Readiness Council's uh, kind of panel. Uh, it's just the, the title that came AI Tides, Altman's Exit and Bard's Teen Leap. So that's quite uh, uh, an agenda here. And I'm just really excited uh, that Dan and I have been uh, invited to co-host this and facilitate the conversation. We have a phenomenal group of educators and leaders from around the globe. Uh, joining us today. So I'm quickly going to go around. Uh, Ryan is a consultant and has done a lot of work with Faria and definitely uh, do look him up. The work he does is quite outstanding and I know he's helped a lot of schools uh, in their journey with uh, putting different systems together. Warren is at the American School in Japan, and he's also involved with the Department of Overseas Schools. Uh, there is the World uh, Technology Group, and I forget the title, so my apologies, Warren, but he's involved in supporting a lot of schools around the world. Adam Morris, who's the School Technology Director for Faria Education Group. And we have Greg Clinton, uh, who's the Director of Technology and Innovation in Chennai. We have Kelly, who's at Pinecrest in Fort Lauderdale and also does a, a very popular podcast called Teaching Python. And least but not last is Christina, who's at Pinkerton Academy and also is very active on this AI group that many of the panelists are. It's a very rich group. Some unbelievable sharing and articles are always uh, taken up. Dan, good morning. We're here now in a new setting uh, on another StreamYard. How are you doing today? John, great, great to see you here. It's nice to have Wolfgang being the one organizing things and Brian behind the scenes. So it's great. All we have to do is host, which is the easy part. So I'm really looking forward to learning from all the guests today. So the first question I'm going to ask is to Kelly. So Kelly, uh, with the introduction of these large language models, so I'm thinking of Bard, Anthropic, uh, ChatGPT4 as some examples, uh, what are the key learnings have you seen from your experience in a school setting and also through your work in the podcast? Are there surprises? What's What are you noticing after this year? Thank you, John. Uh, yes, uh, this past year has been quite a, a learning moment and I, I love learning, so I've been just eating it up. Um, but one key learning that I've come across throughout the year is like that crucial balance between you know, harnessing these technologies for educational advancement and being more vigilant about data privacy and trust. Um, as both uh, an ed tech specialist and a computer science teacher, um, AI has been around for me and it has been part of my curriculum for a while, but I've really seen the uh, firsthand importance of incorporating, you know, digital and AI literacy across all the curriculum and not just computer science. So we, it really mandates a, a greater focus on professional development, um, not only with AI, but like cybersecurity and data privacy. And we've heard that a lot with our developers that we've had on the show. I think um, one of the biggest surprises with the people that we've talked to and in working in our school is like this continuous um, evolving role of all teachers. It's like um, we're we're not only the face and sage in the AI era, but we pretty much have to be because we are the 
like the primary source of information when it comes to AI safety and use. Um, most parents that we've talked to, um, some, you know, they don't really understand what's going on. And so they're looking to us and at, as educators to really guide and become role models for emotional intelligence, cultural understanding, and like this ethical development. Thank you, Kelly. And I think it's so interesting how you really emphasize this idea of a balanced approach. And I think, you know, with any new technology or anything, the balanced approach is really important because to any narrative, there are positives and negatives. And I think we need to really understand that. And I really resonated with me the idea that the importance of educators in this narrative and this whole technology, because actually we are having these children that are coming to our schools and we're educating and the idea of, you know, having educators, having the professional development, the toolkits and the skills to be really able to feel comfortable and engage kids in good critical thinking. I think your points are so important. And I, you know, I think as the acceleration continues, that importance is even greater in finding the space and time and also the pause for people to kind of digest what they're doing. So thank you very much uh, for that. Dan, over to you. You're on mute, Dan. Sorry, guys, fundamental error there. Um, second question, and Greg Clinton's going to take the lead on this. Um, regarding the educators and students you work with, how have they adapted to this new technology? And have you observed any specific patterns or behaviors? Thanks, Dan. Um, how have they adapted to this new technology? Well, they haven't yet fully, um, the teachers and students I'm working with. But as with anything, there's a big range. Um, some people have adopted new AI tools and techniques at a blistering pace and others are still sort of um, towing the edges. And I think there's still a lot of fear and anxiety and uncertainty as there should be. And I think this sort of relates to what, um, what Kelly was saying about the, uh, the uncertainty around the future of AI and the open AI fiasco only highlighted that even the experts, the people who are building these technologies are fundamentally uncertain about what's next, right? Even what's next tomorrow or next week. Um, but what I see is a recurring conversation among teachers and students around quantity and quality. Some teachers are saying, um, I'm incorporating AI and I'm excited about it because it's going to save me a lot of time. And here are the things that I'm trying to do to save myself time because time Again, this is part of the emerging conversation I'm sure everyone here has, has heard around the hallways. Time is the most precious teacher resource. This is the story. And therefore, anything that can save us time will improve teachers' lives or whatever, have some positive knock-on effect to teaching. Um, and then at the same time, on the flip side, um, students who adopt um, AI have the same impulse, right? They have the same thing. They say, oh, uh, this can save me a lot of time. And then there's significant pushback from the educators saying, no, 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 no. Um, we would prefer students not take that approach to AI adoption because um, we would like students to spend more time or 
slash effort, mental effort, thinking effort, right? Um, so I think there's this really interesting kind of, I won't call it a double standard. I'll just say that it's it's an interesting conversation that has two facets that are not yet um, reconciled. And uh, I because I'm having these conversations with administrators all the time, um, you know, <laughs> when a student wants to uh, speed up the 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 finishing of their long to-do list using AI, it's seen as uh, very much a negative. Um, but when educators do it, it's seen as a positive. So I kind of I want to push on that, and I think um, I think there's some rich, interesting conclusions that we could come to, or even just questions we can ask about what it means to be a student, particularly, and what it means to be a teacher. In my own opinion, I think. Um, when we adopt these things, we should shoot for higher quality, not necessarily quantity. I think the time argument is right. Teacher time is precious, so is student time. Um, but I think if if we're going to have a lasting impact, um, and if AI adoption is going to be somehow fundamental to changing teaching, it's not going to be because we made rubrics faster. It's be because we we became better thinkers, and because teachers were able to design richer learning experiences that's that's the fundamental shift so um that's my that's my hope in any case so the answer to the question is that's the conversation i'm hearing it's unsettled there's a lot of uncertainty still and i'm still optimistic great greg i think there was a couple of things you said that it was super interesting the first what you said at the beginning like don't be scared to admit you don't know what's going on. I think there's obviously a tendency with all of us to want to try to be knowledgeable on the topic, but you know, with, with AI, it's it's very hard and it's changing so rapidly that I mean, you have to stay humble, like you said, and always be ready to learn because people, it's still a, a very early stage. And like what you mentioned, the double standards is really interesting. You know, like staff want to use, teachers want to use it to speed up their work, but they might object to students doing it. And I think um, educators have to accept that some students can use this to maybe get a long way ahead and, and maybe there's going to be much more differentiated learning with with students who can use AI to really advance themselves and advance their work. So great, great answer, Greg. Thank you. That's so interesting. Uh, you know, in so many contexts in education, you know, what teachers want and what students want, often there's a bit of a gap. So I think that's great that you brought that up. One of the things that uh, is leadership teams and different leadership teams have reacted differently. So my question is, how have school leadership teams responded in the implementation of this technology and developing policies around this technology? Because of course, when new things come in as the Center for Human uh, Technology says, with new technologies come new responsibilities. So I'd like to ask Kelly, some of your learning and uh, what, uh, you've seen from leadership teams? So it was quite funny because we were one of the many schools that had that, you know, knee jerk response. It was short lived, but we were like, <laughs> oh my gosh, AP exams and our English teachers are freaking out. So knock it, shut it down, shut it down. And we had, uh, you know, lower school students finding these great little chats and it was just really scary at the time. Um, but in, in our school, we did a, an amazing job, I feel, of establishing um, a well-rounded think tank committee. Uh, we had teachers, we had admin, um, we had higher level admin, 
all of the ed tech specialists were there and it's like really applied a various um, perspectives on the issue. We had a lot of English teachers on this think tank and it really helped us to avoid that collective, uh, you know, the collective intelligence, or not, I shouldn't say collective intelligence, that group think. And we went more onto this collective intelligence of just really looking at policies and um, finding out how we were gonna educate the PD. And I think that was a struggle that a lot of schools went through. Um, since then, we, we really spent a lot of time providing PD to enhance AI literacy. I think for me as a computer scientist, um, the one thing that I noticed was a lot of people really go after these, you know, a, and not to down anybody, but AI educators, you know, these people that are not necessarily in the classroom right away and, and saying, here's how you use AI without that background knowledge as an AI technician or developer. So um, our team was really focused on getting in the, the tech, you know, the tech directors and computer science teachers to really question the AI and how it was developed. So we've been having lots of conversations with pilot AI programs, trying to find time, time to find a, um, a pilot that we can adopt. And what we're finding out is like, a lot of these pilot programs don't know about COPA. They really don't um, follow FERPA or GDPR. They're not compliant. And um, a lot of these pilots have authority or um, ownership of intellectual property by both students and teachers. So this has been like a constant look for us, um, one, of our, one of our focuses. So it's not just about using AI and yeah, great, we'll get in there and they're gonna change the world. We really need to protect ourselves. And I think our school has done a great job with like looking at that and putting policies up for that. privacy and data protection. COPA for our uh, non-North American audience is the Child Online Protection Act. And uh, GDPR is a general data protection regulation out of the EU. So I think that's really interesting. And what I like is this idea of having multiple voices because I think everybody has a perspective and bringing them together, I think it just comes up with a much richer uh, strategic vision of how to move forward. Christina, uh, please jump in. You had something to share. And then I know Ryan also wants to share. So Christina and Ryan. Christina, kick us off in your response. Thank you, John. Um, Kelly, I did like what you said about having the, the voices heard as well. Um, and it's interesting to see the spectrum of responses from schools, uh, everything from those that are kind of at the leading edge of this to those that are still very nervous and really haven't started the process yet. Um, and I'm seeing that entire spectrum. I'm very fortunate at the school that I'm at that our admin and our board of trustees were in it from the beginning. <clears throat> and one of the things that we're seeing a shift in in our mindset and our thinking, especially in our humanities um, departments, is with um, more of a positive approach. So instead of looking at AI and um, looking at it to chase cheating and plagiarism, although they are aware of it and that is part of um, how we are approaching things, they're looking at how to model AI for our students, how to model good use and intentional use of it and also to use it to harness, um, harness it to complement the educator skills. 
So when we talk about saving time, how do we save time to do some of those tasks to take that off of the educator's plate so that their skill set can go towards the um, the higher level and the, the more critical thinking, problem solving things that they got into education for in the um, to begin with? And how can they use it to um, enhance their educational practice? So we are starting to see, especially our English teachers, for example, are looking at it um, and thinking about it in terms of their instructional practice. How can I use this to provide better feedback to our students? Um, how can we use that to help them do better research? Things like that. Great, Christina. And I think it's so interesting that, you know, that's what we want is learning to be richer and really pushing kids to higher order thinking. So I think this really is a, a very important aspect that you share about how that transformation of the teacher understanding the potential and how that's going to only amplify their own craft. Ryan, please jump in. Yeah, thank you, John. Um, it's been a great conversation hearing from everyone so far. Um, you know, my perspective is a little bit different over the past year. I've been working in uh, more development with corporations and schools on how do we incorporate AI uh, in the education and learning process. Um, and I think like this process of discovery, we're, we're in a stage almost as a world, as a society where we're looking at kind of this speculative AI, what can it do? And we're discovering what I like to call AI as reality. Well, like, well, what can it do? You know, so we're all trying in our schools or in our lives, like, how do we incorporate this? Does it work in the situation? I think it would be great for this. And then it is or it isn't. Um, that it's this really exciting process of discovery, which I think is very unique, that we're all kind of a part of. Um, so Kelly, you mentioned about data privacy and concerns, and that's definitely, you know, a huge concern, especially with these larger companies. How are they using the data? How are they, how's all of this being built? Um, so I wanted to do like a, I have no affiliation with Hugging Face, but Hugging Face is an open source AI community that uh, I think UNESCO, I was reading, they're, they're also talking about using some of those um, LLMs that are open source that like you can run at your school. There's no data issues to start like exploring what will this look like? Um, in a school. I think there's this incredible speculative side of what could it be that's also outside of, you know, OpenAI, Sam Altman, Bard, et cetera, that like we definitely can't forget about also. Thank you. And I, uh, that's interesting. Can you, uh, Ryan, tell us again that open source organization, because that would be interesting for people maybe to pop by and see. Sure. Yeah. So Hugging Face, they're not open source. They're a place to share models. So OpenAI, okay. Microsoft, Facebook, as well as like a lot of smaller companies like Stability AI, uh, Stochastic AI, Falcon out of the UAE. There's tons of places where on a MacBook you can download an LLM that works pretty well. I mean, like back in May, I programmed an IB chatbot. Uh, that was built off of like the IB documentation and ran off my computer at home. Um, cool. it, it's an incredible community that, you know, if you're feeling like everything's like a whirlwind and it's all passing you by, um, you can get a little bit more involved in your feet on the ground. Great. Thank you, Ryan. That's really nice to highlight that resource. Dan, over to you. Great. And the next question, uh, Adam is going to take the lead on this. And I think Adam's a great person to do this because with where he has, he has, um, works with a lot of different schools. 
So uh, there's a range of opinions on AI. Some view it as, as, as a risk with a somewhat doomsday narrative. Others see its benefits and applaud how it might change the world for good. What is the general thinking in your school or rather school's environment and why? Thanks, Dan. Uh, thanks for those kinds of word, kind of words um, and welcome everyone. Um, thanks for inviting me. So in my role here at, at Feria, I work with schools and hosted events. And so I thought I would um, answer the question because I've had a number of questions that um, when I'm hosting an event and kind of can tell kind of the more of, um, we've spoken a lot about the general general opinions or some sort of group thinks aspects or some of the industry trends, but there's also like the individuals who who are, who are interfacing with AI for the first time. Um, so from those uh, range of opinions, um, there's a spectrum, of course. Probably the singular opinion that everyone seems to hold, though, is um, to be polite to AI. That seems to be the, the running gag. And so that's probably the only thing that they all agree on. Um, but all kidding aside, the spectrum is real. Um, some, uh, some were, I've even had uh, questions from the audience that were uh, it could kind of tell a little bit hostile to the uh, technology, which you can understand. Um, a uh, few, few questions. Um, it, it, I noticed that the, that questions were more common from the from the guidance counselors. So you know the uh, schools are amazingly dynamic organizations, and uh, we talk a lot about teachers and leadership. But there's also the um, you know administrative assistants and other actors who have a uh, you know, might see uh, this technology as yet another thing that they just have to um, kind of tolerate or something. And so there's that kind of. Um, there's also the rather welcoming uh, teachers who feel that, um, like myself, uh, since I've used AI with my activities, I'm uh, more productive. Uh, I can multitask easier. Um, so there's there's also that um, kind of opinion on it. Um, I think though, uh, like maybe most people are probably quite confused. But what what does it mean for us now, and and where are we with things? So no matter if you're a hostile to it or you're welcoming it and using it, you just still there's open, lots of open uh, questions and. Um, one of, the, one of the questions I can help with maybe uh, to an individual level is um, to tackle the digital um, digital natives. There's a philosophical tradition in education to consider students to be digital natives. And so that's the confusing part for teachers who are working with AI. They always feel that the student is so much better than we are. So what can we do? What How, how can we possibly play a role there? Um, so I point out that like, well, students are better at slang than we are. Um, that's because they use it. They play with language and, you know, in their particular context. And so translating that to technology, they seem to be better at it. They know where settings are faster than we do, things like that. Doesn't mean that they, you know, we still have better language than they do. They, we still model language use and things about responsible use of language and, and other things. So um, I, I think that's uh, something to keep in mind uh, that just because students are so much better at it seem to be technology is progressing so much qu quicker than we're used to. Um, st we still have a role to play, um, no matter what our opinion is about it. Um, so for that reason, I think we need to play with the technology, no matter what your uh, stance is, so that you can be that role model uh, for students who are watching watching the world um, turn with us. So. Thank you, Adam. And I, I love the analogy about the digital natives because I think my thing is that, uh, you know, they're digital consumers. They're very good at consumption, and but sometimes they don't understand the ethics or even some of the more complex uh, ways these systems work. So I think your point's an important one. And uh, I love also the... 
uh, idea that, you know, the politeness. Uh, I know some people, I've uh, seen people say please and thank you. So that's kind of an interesting little anecdote that you shared. Thank you so much, Adam, for that. One thing that, you know, there, considering that, you know, the different perspectives that we have on AI, and, you know, there's this fear that it's going to replace teachers, exams, that content-driven assessments going to go out, uh, and views of it being an educational tool that can actually enhance learning and support more efficient workflows and teacher administrative tasks. I'd like to ask Warren, what are your personal reflections in your role and what are you hearing amongst educators, kind of the yin and yang, the doomsday and then the positive? How are they kind of playing off each other and what are you noticing? Sure. Thanks, John. Um, yeah, I mean, well, for me personally, I'm super optimistic on the impact of AI on learning um, and I'm having a lot of fun playing with tools and thinking about how to leverage them at school. Um, but when I think specifically about teachers' reactions, well, first, like like Greg and Adam said earlier, it, there is a wide range. Um, I have just one example lately. Uh, last week, I showed Sherpa to a high school teacher. Um, and if you haven't seen Sherpa before, uh, I really like it. It's really cool. It lets every student have a one-on-one -on -one conversation with an AI that feels kind of like a video call, like you're having a Zoom with an AI. So you answer six questions and they get increasingly challenging. And then the AI summarizes the conversation and it gives that summary to the teacher. So there's an interface for the teacher where they see a synopsis of the conversation. Um, and then they can, if they want, they can watch the video. So it's really amazing. 20 kids can each have a 15 minute one-on-one -on -one conversation at a deep and meaningful level. Um, and that would take a human about five hours to do. Uh, and so I showed it to, to two teachers who just love it. Um, they want to get started right away. And one was a little bit kind of meh, um, didn't want to stop anybody, but just realized it's just not a thing that, that they want to have anything to do with. But then there was this one that had a very visceral reaction. Um, the, the quote was, I feel like this is going to take my job. And I think realistically, teachers have one of the safest jobs of all. As long as we have physical spaces where kids go to learn, uh, there's going to be adults employed there. Um, but so I think what was really happening wasn't job loss. It was about identity. Um, because a year ago, before ChatGPT, the thing that made you special was that you could have a deep and meaningful conversation about literature and metaphor and author's intent, and you could lead a Socratic webinar. Um, but if if AI can do that one special thing that you're good at, then it's, it's pretty threatening, not just to your job, but to your identity and to who you are. Um, and so that's, yeah, that's kind of the, the wide swing of reactions that I'm seeing. Thank you, Warren. And I, I think that's really interesting also how the reaction when you showed that uh, Shepard, you know, kind of that the engagement, but still always there is going to be somebody that might hold back a bit. Greg, I would love to hear also your thoughts. You were uh, in the chat on this. Yeah. Um, Warren. Warren's example is one that I've also um, played with and had the exact same, the exact same range uh, of reactions, especially from English teachers. And I was interested to hear Christina talk about um, how English teachers seem to be um, shifting from the apocalyptic uh, moment when AI was released to a more sort of positive approach. Um, we're still working through that at our school for sure. It's not a it's not a clear trend yet, 
Um, but I think overall, I and and I'm really interested in in the ethical and the um, the the background where data privacy and everything. And I kind of assume that very thoughtful people like Adam and Ryan and Kelly will solve all of these problems about about the data privacy. Um, because when it comes to teaching and learning, um, the one drawback I'm seeing right now is that most people are forming opinions about the utility of AI based on uh, substandard, non-gold standard tools. I'm just going to put, I'm going to throw it out there. I've been paying for ChatGPT4 uh, for longer than anybody else I know. So I have, I feel like I've got a lot more experience with the gold standard tool. Um, and a lot of people's opinions are being formed by GPT 3.5, which is the free version that you can go on, sign up for and use. Um, and I, I struggle to have a conversation with those, with those teachers because the quality is so much lower. And I think, um, I think that, so Sherpa is one tool that is using a higher quality model. And the conversations it has with students is really sort of rich. Um, so I think, I, I mean, I just, I guess overall, there's this divide between the tinkerers, Kelly mentioned them, the, the people who are sort of like employed specifically to dig down into these issues. There's a divide that's forming between people who have time and space to tinker and resources, frankly. I mean, it costs money um, to, to access some of these tools. And those who don't, um, and so I think it's incumbent on us to to do that work really well. It, it, I feel very responsible for doing a lot of deep research into some of these tools and making sure that the impact, if there is one, is is real and it's not just um, one more one more ed tech hype cycle. Not one more. It's not one more tech uh, kind of phase. It is something that's really there. And also interesting to hear about the difference that you were talking about 3.5 and 4.0. I, I think, you know, sometimes what's difficult for all of us is when you have such prominent existential risks that sometimes are associated with for example, climate change and AI, sometimes it's really hard to digest them and actually find out or even find a space where you can say, how am I going to interact with that? Or how am I going to get involved in a way that's going to be positive? So I think sometimes that can feel a little different. Uh, also, any other buddy from the panel wants to jump in on this? Because I think this has been really rich, what Warren and Greg have uh, shared just recently. And I just think it'd be nice to hear from some other panelists. I'm putting everybody on the spot here. Yeah, so, John, I... so Adam, thank you. <laughs> I just wanted to chime in uh, quickly because I wanted to just like um, confirm that I I've also been using like the latest version of ChatGPT um, and some other ones. Uh, and yeah, for the, the plus version, some, I've heard it called 4.5. It is substantially better and it's getting better. Um, and it's right to point out that uh, there's a disparity with like those who are willing to try them out, who will subscribe to the, um, so there's a, there's a, you know, economic disparity there. I, I just want to also add to the complexity of everything that, uh, well, I'm, I'm in Asia Pacific. So I'm aware that like the GPTs that are available in Japanese and Korean. Chinese 
aren't as good as they are in English. Um, I think in European languages is a little bit better. So there's a disparity of being able to use generative models, LLMs in English, because they are, uh, that's what I'm hearing from, uh, from around, from around, uh, from events uh, telling me about it, that, that it's, that, that teachers who can speak another language, Japanese fluently, have to use English as a second language in order to get the results they're looking for and then translate to back to Japanese. I just think it adds a lot more of the uh, complexity um, to everything that we're already talking about. And it's really interesting, the idea about language, because I was uh, listening and reading that some uh, languages which are not as prominent on the internet as data sets are at a huge disadvantage compared to English or some of the more common languages. And also uh, some of the languages that are not based on the Roman alphabet sometimes are at a disadvantage. So I think those are really interesting highlights on that. And uh, again, remember that uh, Warren had shared this AI called Shepherd, something that you might like to explore as he highlighted it. And also the idea of ChatGPT 3.5, which is the free version. And then you, oh, Sherpa. Thank you, uh, Greg. Sherpa, my, my error. And then also the difference between 3.5 and then the paid version, which is 4.0, where you can actually create your own individualized uh, kind of uh, chat GPTs, which can be really powerful. So I would definitely encourage you to explore uh, both and understand both have different advantages and also some uh, the three the 4.0 is that much more powerful. Dan, over to you, please. Great. So the next discussion point, uh, Kelly's going to take the lead on this one. In what ways do you think large language models and generative AI could reshape school curriculums and teaching methods, especially in certain subjects? So I was trying not to chime in on the other ones, <laughs> just like clear up my mindset for a second. I, I just want to say, um, speaking to a lot of developers, and we're talking about people who work for AWS, um, Anaconda, these are, these are people who have been in it, who are, you know, real computer science teachers, and <laughs> the overwhelming response for them, and I can't say the word on this air, because, you know, I'm a teacher, but it's kind of like, mm, it's really not as magical as a lot of us tend to believe, right? So at the current state, I love the, the, the couple comments that we talked about with saving time. Yes, it saves time for basic um, nuanced tasks, um, but it's getting better, right? It, it, AI has this potential um, to reshape school curriculum. I, that is evident without a doubt. Um, we're already seeing BARD and um, Microsoft's Copilot being introduced. Uh, BARD's really focusing on teens outside of Google for Education. Um, and Dan, you can clear that up for me later. But AI has been so infused on, on so many educational products from Edpuzzle to Gemket to Canva and now YouTube and and we need to wait to see what the potential of uh, that project QSTAR and what it's like, you know, the human-like logic and uh, reasoning abilities. Are we going to um, get there to AGI? This could all really change schools. We have Khan Academy, you know, taking the lead on educating children outside of the school system and a lot of new 
um, products like Quick Learn who are, are trying to get into the meta of teaching. Um, for me, I'm really hoping that um, the school's curriculum kind of shifts to building more competencies, um, frameworks, uh, moral guidelines. We we have that ability. We have that ability to teach these kids, you know, to really make them good human beings. Um, and so we need to make sure that that AI integration is beneficial, responsible, and and pretty much aligned with the school's broader educational goals. Um, I really think that there's going to be uh, more AI that customizes learning experiences, match proficiency levels with, you know, math and science. In the computer science courses that I teach and for languages, there's like a capability to increase the ability to um, communicate creative ideas better, right? Um, my students are already pushing the boundaries with the Anaconda Assistant and being able to produce visual dashboards when they can only code basic Python. So I'm thinking that with the LLMs and general AI that we're really going to push the boundaries of uh, what kids can do with their foundational knowledge. And I could go on, but I'm gonna stop and let <laughs> some other people chime in. I just wanted to say like threatening identity. I love that um, statement by Warren that um, I think we we have an identity to keep as teachers to build human beings. And that's that's going to definitely come into play with the reshaping of curriculum. Thank you, Kelly. And I think that's so true that identity is just so important because there's nothing like human beings. And, you know, it it's cohabitation. It's how do we cohabit together uh, in this new uh, landscape. Adam, you had some thoughts to add. Yeah, I wanted to just uh, kind of wondering if, uh, Kelly, if you've noticed the same sort of pattern I have, because uh, I also work with developers uh, very closely. I work with teacher, you are a teacher. The domain of like teaching and learning curriculum frameworks, that's sort of, it's sort of the area where uh, generative AI is not so good at. If, you, if you're an engineer, or you have, are you working in a domain where you're solving problems that have solutions? Like if we were in a school context, maybe we were a timetabler and we're using generative AI for like some sort of solved problem, then it would be, it, it could do it for us. It could be changing uh, the way we work from a very fundamental level. Um, but have you noticed the same thing I have where it, it's, it does seem to save, it does have the promise of saving time in the sense of giving you good ideas, but you still need to have professional judgment aspect um, it's almost like a draft and then you just kind of look at it like you would with someone that you're just consulting with like you're just talking to them about what you could teach and the ideas they have but I need to take that and put it into the proper context use my professional judgment understand my students um, I'm just wondering if you've noticed the same thing the change of domain is a big influence in how powerful Genervaya can be as a change absolutely. Kelly your thoughts uh, absolutely um, we have to remember that NLP, natural language processing, is like the, the root of this, right? And these linguists are the people, as you know, who kind of developed <laughs> these LLMs. Um, and so it's funny when you're speaking to the developers, um, they say, yeah, okay, you can find ways to use generative AI to save you time in, in small shortcuts. 
But if you're an entrepreneur or you're a developer working on a project within your company, the last thing you want to do is leave it to chance for um, ChatGPT 4.5 or some sort of copilot to generate the code for you because it takes longer to code with generative AI um, than it does to actually know how to code in the background. I mean, it was funny watching the kids trying to use Anaconda Assistant. They didn't know the questions and they ran out of the free amount of questions to ask the AI because you have to have that fonda foundational knowledge because even with the paid version of ChatGPT, it's taking you right down wrong paths or it might lead to um, um, faulty code or code that won't pass tests or, you know, beta, beta testing. So it, it's really funny. The, the developers I've been speaking to say, yeah, okay, we use it to generate linguistic stuff, but not going to chance it to develop my, my code for businesses. That's really interesting bringing that up because it's a great segue is that, you know, sometimes people think this is the, the golden solution and you just throw in your lesson plan and you're good to go. And I think what you're highlighting and from my personal experience, working with these large language models requires a lot of good prompting. So in other words, what kind of questions and then reading what is generated and then going back and saying, no, that's not really, could you try this and that? And it, it is an iterative process. And I think that's really important for everybody to understand. It's just not, it's not like an instant return and you got everything good to go. So on that kind of topic of understanding that these things aren't perfect and they have a lot of potential flaws is the whole idea of uh, the AI bias and gender and race and some of these topics. And Joyce Bulyuani has just released a book that I highly recommend called Unmasking AI. And she's been doing a lot of work. Uh, she's uh, at MIT and also part of the Algorithmic Justice League. And they've been doing a lot of work on these issues of uh, uh, DEIJ. So diversity, equity, injustice, and inclusion. And there is growing evidence. So because so often the data sets that we work with have those biases in them, they just get amplified sometimes by AI. And I'm just curious. I know uh, Ryan's going to address this as, you know, what are some of the issues and what are you seeing to ensure these that it's more equitable and inclusive uh, in the classroom? What, what are some things that you're noticing or what you think we should be talking about, Ryan? And then, of course, anybody else jump in. I think it's important that we don't make assumptions. So um, one thing that was really interesting listening to the conversation, I was reading uh, by NewsGuard, who they're a group of um, journalists, ex-journalists who were worried about disinformation in the media and then they sell a product to Facebook and Microsoft and these different companies to help them rate um, news sources. And they evaluated these different AI systems. They found that actually GPT-3, if you feed it biased statements, 80% um, of them, it would keep going like they are facts. Uh, well, GPT-3.5, uh, when they tried this with GPT-4, was 100%. It echoed 100% of the biased statements, uh, which I think it's a little bit counterintuitive to our immediate expectations, but it's not. If you think about human nature also, sometimes the most brilliant among us are also the people who can kind of get the most carried away by the knowledge that we possess. And so when you feed these more information, how does it 
evaluate veracity. Um, and so I want to take a step back. I think Adam brought up a great term that's digital natives. Um, and this idea, you know, I'm actually a former language teacher, as I think a couple of us are. And um, I think we can also look at LLMs, not as technology, but instead as um, a voice, because it's a voice you interact with. In fact, it's like an inherently political voice in a way where these companies have an obligation to um, curate a message that meets their company objectives as well as you know national and global objectives. So we need to look at the source where they come from. Uh, one of the comments they mentioned about like the dangers of open source models, which I brought up before, and it's true. There, there's a lot of danger where people have the power to coerce this voice that potentially has, you know, I can't speak to a million people, but if I work on one of these models, I potentially could perpetuate my idea. So how does this fit into the classroom? Well, I think actually this is maybe the domain of a language teacher. One of the most challenging domains is critically assessing who we engage with. What type of bias do we see and what we engage with? Um, what is the authority behind this source? How do I validate it? How do I assess it? Um, and that's something that, you know, I used to do a lot as a language teacher. And now in this domain, it's incredibly exciting. Uh, there's uh, Pedagogy UI, which is a project by Harvard. And um, they do like amazing like little activities and lesson plans. Um, that you can use in your classrooms. And one of them is about like looking at disinformation and actually having like the kids generate disinformation using an AI and then evaluating like what it was like and what their experience was to, to build this more critical understanding. Um, I wanna contrast this very briefly because I've been talking for a while. Uh, older AI models, like the classification AIs, um, they had really extreme and transparent biases. Like Google's image was uh, like objectively racist, uh, the early uh, image classification systems. These new ones, it's a lot more muddled. I think this is less the domain of computer scientists and more the domain of language teachers, to be honest. Uh, at least for me, that's, that's the side of me that gets excited by this conversation. Thank you. And I think it's really important what you highlighted is that, you know, you're highlighting these language teachers really getting kids to engage with AI tools to look at misinformation and fake news and understanding what is the, you know, how do you double check sources? How do you ensure it's authored and it, it's timely and really digging deep into the the steps and the toolkits of strategies to make sure when people are interacting with these models and information, they're being critical and really being uh, open to looking at different perspectives and understanding how maybe certain articles or even media feeds have a bias in them and how to pull that out. And I love the example of where kids are actually creating biased scenarios and then they have to analyze them. And I just think it's so important. And the whole information literacy, media literacy, I, I just feel so strongly this has to do uh, about our own uh, values of democratic and, and voice and student agency. And I think also the idea of free will. So I'm ranting here. So I will go over to Dan now uh, on that. But thank you, uh, everybody, on that topic of bias. I just think that was really helpful to get that perspective. Dan. Great. So the next question, we've actually covered this a few in a, a little bit earlier. So it might, might be a quicker one to answer. But 
But are there some criticism that schools and educators sometimes lag in digital literacy and tech integration and are out of touch with students' social media use? Do you think this is happening with AI in schools also? Why or why not? And uh, Christina is going to take the lead, I think. Okay, so um, for the most part, I agree. I do think that we are lagging behind with digital citizenship uh, and digital literacy. I don't think as much with the tech integration, um, certainly media, media literacy, and with AI, of course, um, but I think this also extends to our faculty and we are racing to bring them up to speed, never mind getting to our student body. Um, and my own personal opinion is the next things going on that list are gonna be that AI literacy, especially for middle high school age. And then um, for elementary age, and again, I know I'm in the North American market, so um, I'm framing it with that, um, with AI readiness. So I think even our younger kids need to be brought up with some readiness. And I think that this should include algorithms because I, that's a big part of all of this, as well as data in all of its forms. Um, and when I think specifically of students and their social media use, and what we say out of touch, I think everyone's out of touch because we all use it differently. Um, and if you want to get into that generational thing, but, but even you know a kid that's a freshman, versus a senior, I can see very different ways um, that they approach social media, the tools and the resources that they use, the thinking patterns. Um, and those thinking patterns are very interesting. And that's what I would love to tap into with our students. When I watch, for example, my daughter and her friends, now they are juniors at the college level, and they incorporate technology and AI into their daily life. And it's a different approach. Um, the way that they um, attach it to their life is a little bit different. I had sent a text to one of the girls saying, you know, happy birthday. And um, it was my mistake. I had done it a day early. She didn't know how to respond to that. So what do you think she did? She went to ChatGPT to see how to respond to me saying it a day early. So and I didn't know this until later. And so um, she sent back just a quick text, but she had used some information from ChatGPT on how to respond to me. It's probably what she would have done anyway, but it was almost like a validation for her. And I responded back and all the girls looked at that and they started you know, to think, did I use ChatGPT to then respond to them? So they're starting to incorporate it just into that daily routine of thinking, which I don't think that us as educators are certainly at that level. Um, and so our, our students are bringing a different perspective to the use of, of AI. And I don't think we're ever going to catch up to it. We just have to do the best we can. And I think that's so important, Dan. I mean, we've talked about that a bit with many of our guests, this exactly. kind of, yeah. Fascinating, yeah, great answer. So we are kind of coming to the end and we have some audience questions, but before we finish up, just, you know, if you have been watching or listening or reading or anything on any social media and you type in AI, of course, this whole turmoil with OpenAI and their CEO and the back and forth, all within a week. 
I mean, usually these things, you know, think about how governments change or even in your schools, you know, trying to implement change, how it just takes much more time. But it's just been, you know, some people have used the world, uh, the word turmoil and uh, how is this going to impact AI? It's, it's a wild west, whatever. And these are just terms that are floating around. I'm wondering, does this impact schools in any way? What's happening here at, at when AI companies go through that turmoil and, you know, Microsoft does this or one of the others does that? How does that impact schools? And I think Ryan is there. Yeah, Ryan, you're going to kick off and then we'll hear from people and we'll go to our audience for questions. Um, yeah, I think it's, you know, we all love spectacle. I think we've all probably been in an organization where there's been chaos. Um, the way I would kind of poetically put it as like, when we look at this, we're like peasants ruminating on the actions of the gods, not to give them like deification, but what billions do, what billionaires do with their money, like I have little impact on that. However, what I can do is um, kind of what something Kelly has brought up. I can look at, well, where kind of are we now? How can we speculate what's gonna happen in the future? And how do we build protections around that? How do we evaluate what these companies are doing, uh, what the potential impacts are going to have, and where do we as individuals and organizations stand in regards to that? You know, like, it's important that I think, like, it's fun to talk about these things, but we focus on the issues rather than, let's say, the personalities. Like, some big concerns with AI are, like, the coalition uh, or the, the kind of conglomeration of power. Um, you know, there's, there's very few people controlling a lot of power. Um, and it also potentially is like a very powerful tool for autocracies, surveillance states, you know, mass distribution of a singular unified voice. You know, where, where do we stand on that? Where do we stand on it environmentally? You know, like we don't really talk about this. It doesn't come up that much, but it's incredibly uh, resource intensive to run these things, like much more exponentially so than anything else we've done in the past. So where does that fit in how we approach it? And it, these are really, really big topics, but I think it's important that um, we as individuals take a critical stance rather than like towards the facts and towards like the individual um, issues and not the personalities involved, uh, not like kind of these pseudo-human uh, allegiances uh, to kind of, you know, like the, the, the starry figures on the internet. Um, because I think the issues we can speculate on now, we can have ideas of where things are going and we can make plans for that. Uh, the personalities, it's theater. Exactly. And I think theater is what we like. We like, you know, everybody likes soap operas and it's exciting, you know, and these people from Silicon Valley back and forth. Greg, you wanted to add to Ryan. Ryan, thank you very much because I think you brought up so many very important points. There are great talking points to take as educators in the context of your school and even as leadership teams or teams of educators to be making sure we're addressing some of the issues that you brought up. Greg. Yeah, the I mean, I agree with everything Ryan's saying. Um, and yet, if the question is, um, how is this going to impact education? Like, this, how does the soap opera of OpenAI impact education specifically? I think really pragmatically, it comes down to a couple things. One thing, and I'm going to be super brief, but I think this is important. So Kelly brought up the fact that she's noticing students who are using the AI tools available to them unsuccessfully in some ways because they're just not fundamentally ready, right? 
elementary school teachers I work with are sort of disappointed when I tell them that, no, like <laughs> your kids can't have access to these tools. They're not built for, for kids. Um, and even high school kids need training and even adults need training. So um, it's like driving a car or operating any other sort of machinery, you know. Uh, but the reason that the open AI drama impacts education pragmatically is that there are there's this whole like ecosystem of developers who are building tools that do give younger and less experienced people access to AI as a as a thing that they can use. And those developers are relying right now on who is successful in the AI world. And so they are very much attuned to who wins these kind of um, titanic, you know, um, whatever they are, these sea changing uh, conflicts, because they in some ways rely on the success of the larger ecosystem. And so I was talking to a developer of a different tool recently and they, they said, yeah, I have to pause a bunch of things right now just so I can figure out who's going to come out on top of this. So will it impact education? Yeah, indirectly, the tools that are available to younger and less experienced people will be built on the success of the ecosystems, whether it's an open source community or a giant conglomerate of um, big tech. Either way, that's gonna that's gonna spell the future of of what happens in the classroom. Anyway, thank you so much, Greg. And I think also we need to be mindful. There are nine companies in the world that pretty much uh, generate most of the capacity to create these uh, art uh, large language models. Five are in the United States, and five are in the People's Republic of China. So. Uh, that's just some things to be mindful of. Well, what we're going to do now is we're going to go to our audience and thank you for the audience who have been sharing uh, questions. And uh, the first question is, how are schools addressing the balance between saving time, saving timing, creating, and then increased time demands on the other end of scale and consumption of content? I'll read it again. How, this is from James. How are schools addressing the balance between saving time, creating, and the increased time demands on the other end of scale with consumption of content? I'm going to uh, ask one of our audience members who would maybe like to. Christina, thank you very much. So uh, I'll do my best with this from, from what I'm understanding here. And I think for us, one of the things we've done is uh, draw a line in the sand a little bit. And um, from the sentient syllabus, they've got a, an AI statement and we've adopted some of it. And the top here says, assistance from an AI system is too much. So identify at your environment, your school system, what is too much. Assistance from an AI system is too much when it interferes with the educational objectives or the assessment of a submitted work. So that kind of keeps us in balance a little bit is saying, um, is deciding what is too much. Um, you could also, we give um, a continuum of use, which you've probably seen online um, from everything from completely student created to completely bot created. And you could use this with faculty as well, completely teacher created versus completely um, bot created. And so it's finding those spots for balance and um, presenting those as opportunities to staff. Thank you very much, Christina. Our next question from Garland. Can AI be utilized to alleviate the bother 
inherent of the teaching process or simplifying administrative tasks like communication with parents and providing personalized feedback to students. Who would like to jump in and uh, share that one? Kelly. So this is an interesting one. And, you know, I had this conversation in a, in a faculty meeting and I love it. Um, one of the English teachers said, oh, so should I write all my emails with, you know, chat GPT? And I said, oh my gosh, no, you're a brilliant writer. Why would you do that? You know, for someone like me who uses Grammarly and spell check, you know, a lot to make sure I don't make tons of mistakes, I would use it but I need to make sure that it's still in my voice and it still is focused on that student. Um, sometimes it's kind of cold. So we need to make sure that the tone and the voice is there. Um, and uh, I would also say that for feedback, feedback's great. There are a couple of tools that we're going to be piloting. Um, text textus which is um, an, an automated grader and flint ai they have this ability to help provide um, feedback right away but we need to be in control as educators to make sure that we understand how to to make sure it's saying what we want to say and that it's in that it's beneficial to that child because each child is different and the ai doesn't know that so we really need to um be careful as educators to make sure that our voice is is clear and protecting the student so yes and i think that's so important is that the voice is clear and that we're protecting students and we're creating curating and choreographing environments that are pedagogically appropriate for the kids and also we bring so much to the table so much experience and these things aren't sentient you know and i think we need to be uh, mindful of that. Ryan, you wanted to add to that. Oh, sorry. Um, I thought that it was the next comment, but yeah, I can, um, I can add to that. What, uh, Kelly said is really, um, it resonates with me. Uh, one of the, like, the first tools I experimented with making, um, when it came to, you know, chat GPT just being released was a report card writer. Cause I was curious if given like a fixed standard, um, it was able to generate reliable content. Not necessarily what does it look like in implementation, but um, you know, we had a comment a while back that asked if um, AI, well, it said AI is not yet capable of metacognition and that we need like human-based critical thinking in all cases. I think beyond that, what's really important in like our policies around the world, not just in schools and how we approach AI is around accountability. Like if I'm going to use AI to write my emails and the AI goes off and just like says something that I really shouldn't have said, like I need to be held responsible. Like um, that was, you know, what I said. Um, I think when we look at how we use it, it really is about not just a tool to replace work. There, there has to be an accountability, a human accountability layer in there uh, to use it responsibly. Yeah, and I think that's one thing that you hear a lot when you read uh, that this idea of having the accountability, some guardrails. There are a lot of different, uh, you know, thinkers and engineers and software developers that are really amplifying that. And there's a great book called The Alignment Problem that really talks about these guardrails. 
I just were coming coming to the end and just one thing that I just, you know, I'm I Dan and I always say this when we get to facilitate, we get to learn so much. So I'm just like buzzing with perspectives and ideas. But one thing that I want to compliment everybody in the room is that you really are looking this as an inquiry. And I love that, that you're asking questions, you're reflecting, you're being uh, critical thinkers, you're also analyzing and understanding everything has to have balance. And the one thing that kept coming up was the idea of the student. You know, we are doing this for the students to prepare them and that we need to be mindful of, you know, the different ages and the different diverse kind of learning styles and how we can amplify this. And this is not going to replace teachers. That's pretty clear from what everybody's saying. And then actually be careful how you use it because it might backfire. And I actually was witness to uh, an educator showing something, uh, some geography thing, and it was absolutely wrong. And they had just copied and pasted from chat GPT. So I think that always is something to be mindful of. But I really appreciate uh, the way you have all demonstrated this idea of being an inquiry, asking questions, being balanced. Also, not jumping to conclusions, but not always shutting down the doors that we're open, but we're cautious and we're cautious as educators that need to be reflective in the way they develop their practice and the tools that they engage with. Uh, we have a last prompt. And one thing is, what would you as panelists want to recommend something to read, something to watch, something to listen, and maybe why. Warren, over to you. Sure. Um, over the summer, we did a, a school, one of the books we read for the summer read was AI 2041. Um, and it's a really nice mix of fiction and nonfiction to help explain AI to a, to an audience that might not be as technically, um, yeah, might, might be learning about AI and want to know more about it. So AI 2041. AI 2041, so Warren's recommendation. Adam? Uh, yeah, so on the topic, on the, with the idea of if you want to stay abreast of the, with the industry, um, maybe you have a, a feed or your social media feed is keeping you up to date on what's happening um, with, uh, with AI in general, and you want to kind of know what's happening, but you don't want to spend a lot of time. You literally just want one place. Then I would recommend techmeme.com. Um, it's a it's a curated uh, uh, website, but they really good at identifying the one article of the day that you probably at least should see the headline of, and then you can get a uh, um, you know really brief overview of where the t industry is at the moment um, and get on with the teaching and the, the regular thing that you do. So um, that would be my recommendation, and my final recommendation would be to learn some coding. Um, uh, I would suggest Python being uh, maybe your first choice if. Uh, there you go. <laughs> Listen to Kelly's myself. podcast. <laughs> That's a good podcast. Thanks, uh, yeah, I learned some Python because I, I decided to do so about five years ago and changed my career trajectory. Um, and it's going to be beneficial to you uh, learning to learn AI, even if you don't make something with code, learning how to code, you can talk to a GTPT better. Um, and um, well, I could go on for a long time on that. But that would be my two takeaways. Great. Thank you for both those. And I, I can't uh, agree more with the coding. I've just been teaching kindergartners and pre-reception coding, and they just love it. And it's amazing what they come up with and how they, you know, to watch their thinking and seeing it be so visible. Christina, what would you suggest as a read, a listen, or a watch? I'm going to give you two quick ones. The first one is um, called The Neuron 
And that one, I get the newsletter every day. It's really easily digestible, little bullet points and, and a little bit more, keep you abreast of what's going on and, and uh, give you some uh, foundational stuff there. The second one is gonna be very different. It's a YouTube video and it's called The Copy and Paste Culture of YouTube. It's an interview with um, Austin Cleon, who is um, the author of Steal Like an Artist. And I'd love for you to take a look at it and look at it um, thinking about our kids, social media, the online culture that they're in, and creativity. How do we um, define plagiarism? Um, what really can we copy and paste from the internet and still be creative and individuals and still have an impact? I think that looking at it from that lens is really interesting. Thank you, Christina. Two great resources. Over to you, Greg. Um, I have two books I would recommend. One really blew my mind called God, Human, Animal, Machine by Megan O'Geeblin. I think that's how you say her name. Um, the subtitle is Technology, Metaphor, and the Search for Meaning. Um, and it really is just a remarkable book that uh, it really digs down into her own personal history and also her history with with artificial intelligence and then sort of our common history with artificial intelligence and how we construct our understanding of it through religious metaphors it's fascinating um it can even speak to how kids kind of naturally or sort of naturally approach through culture um the whole ai revolution is very very interesting the other one i would recommend is a book i'm not done with but i'm going to recommend it anyway i'm going to go out on a limb and say this is an amazing book it's a work of fiction called A Psalm for the Wild Built. And it's, if you're, if you're kind of down about the darkness or the, the, the gloom and doom side of this, um, this, this story will maybe counteract that slightly. And it, um, it, it links to God, Human, Animal, Machine in a way because it's about a future, uh, post-AI future, but it, is very very rooted in humanness and it's so far beautiful and brilliant so pick it up great two fantastic books kelly so i want to thank adam for that shout out for python i agree it has totally changed my mindset um and the way of thinking and so to mirror that kind of response um not everyone has to be a, a developer but everyone should be a coder because it does help you to think better so I recommend an old, it feels like a classic already, it's January 2022 came out, um, Fundamentals of Artificial Intelligence, um, Nisha Talagala and Sindhu Ganta. They did a great job of creating a curriculum with the AI club and really teaching people who may not know even how to code in Python, how to teach the skills of AI and the basics of coding in Python. And it's a fabulous book. And I think um, anyone out there can pick it up and read it and get something, a lot of things out of there that's really useful. So, Thank you, Kelly. And over to Ryan. Yeah, um, I had uh, two recommendations to join the club. So uh, number one, there's um, a YouTube channel called Eye on AI. Um, the most recent one, if you feel like we didn't talk about Sam Altman's exit, uh, with Karen Howe, who was actually a journalist embedded in OpenAI. And she has like really, really nuanced, just wonderful perspective. He's an ex-journalist and like he talks to like the most important people in the industry and humanizes it. And you get like their perspectives about what 
you know, we comparatively lay people, uh, you know, are, are also sharing. And so I think it's really good to kind of humanize that perspective. Uh, secondly, um, about learning to code, yeah, like it's amazing. And um, about last year in like September, I, I was like, I'm gonna learn AI. And I, I think like if you actually learn to code in AI, you're first blown away by how easy it is. It's like three lines of code. I'm like, boom, you've got like a, a thing working. Um, and then it gets to like how hard it is. But again, hugging face, it's incredibly easy uh, to get started with it. Um, they have all these things. You can run it on your MacBook. Uh, really just like dive in um, and learn how these things work. Fantastic. And I think that's really uh, important, this idea of becoming familiar with the language. It's a language. And as we learn Italian or Korean or whatever language, coding is a language too. And I think that's so important. Dan. Yeah, very quick one. If you're not already a member, there's um, a great community, the Tech Directors community hosted by Wolfgang and Brian, who are running this podcast. Uh, it's for tech staff at international schools. So there's some great AI discussions on there. There's one uh, Wolfgang just started about Bard. So I think if you work for an international school, you should definitely be a member. So get in touch with myself or John or Wolfgang or whoever you know on the podcast, and um, I'm sure you can join. So that's mine. Thank you very much. And I'm going to bring up a very old book. It's called Brave New World by Aldous Huxley. And if you have not read it, read it, because it's uh, unbelievable when this was written and where we are today. And it's a great place to really reflect where we're going and about humanity. I just want to thank uh, Greg, Ryan, Warren, Adam, Christina, and Kelly uh, for taking the time in your different time zones. Some have gone up really early, some it's really late, but thank you so much. And if you are not following them on social media, go into LinkedIn, find them. They are really wonderful people and they are leaders and really thought-provoking uh, thinkers that really bring so much and their schools are very lucky to have them because they always bring so much wisdom and uh, important perspectives that we all can grow and learn from. And I want to thank, of course, the Technology uh, Readiness uh, Collective, that's Wolfgang and uh, Brian that are in the background and there are a lot of other people. And Dan and I, uh, thanks Dan, good to see you again. And we'll be, of course, on the International Schools podcast. We have a busy schedule ahead. And uh, Dan, any other closing thoughts or reflections? That was a great point, John. I actually think we're living in a combination of Brave New World and 1984. I think there's like an intersection in the middle. I think that's where we are right now. Okay, Dan, that's our next podcast. There you go. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, everybody. And of course, uh, go to the Technology Readiness Council LinkedIn and webpage because all the recommendations that our guests have so kindly shared will be posted there. So you can go and jump in and start, you know, getting your Christmas list together. There's a lot. Uh, to read and engage with. And thank you and be well. And as you know, we really hope you've learned from here. It's about a balanced approach. It's about cohabitating and we're human and that's what makes us wonderful. Thank you so much, everybody. Have a good uh, continuation of your Sunday.